Today I spoke with Sean, and Sean is a PhD student, and I met him because I volunteered to be a lab rat for him, really, and he's probably the best person to explain why and what he was trying to achieve. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and thank you for coming on the podcast. And as you and I were just literally just talking about, um, I met you because of a, a study that you were doing. Uh, what exactly is the study? Yes, yes. So the the project as a whole, we're looking at looking at a new form of pupillometry as a sensitive indicator of low level carbon monoxide exposure. So to put that simply, it's can we use the eyes to tell us whether someone's been exposed to carbon monoxide? The study specifically that you were involved in is the start of a three stage study where we're looking at forming a baseline. Can we see uh, a certain level of reactivity across that's there's not much variation between different age groups that we can then apply and see is there a difference when actually carbon monoxide is involved then so you were just very easy go through (laughs) expose different colors what do we see basically so what did you pupil Pupilometry. Pupilometry. So let, let's so, start with that. What, what's pupilometry? Pupilometry is the measure of pupil diameter and reactivity to a stimulus. So in the, in the case of this project that you did, it was the, that stimulus was light. So we're looking at the pupillary light reflex. So the class of things, like everyone's aware when light shines in someone's eye, the pupil shrinks. You get that constriction, and then when it's dark, your pupil dilates. Pupilometry has been used in tons of different research, primarily psychology at the moment, because you can use different stimulus. You can have arousal, quite a common one with yeah. psychology, have near fixation, so when things are quite close. But light itself has been using that, the pupillary light reflex dates back so many years to the second century with Galen using that as. Uh, measure to see if it's uh, if it could have a successful patient with his cataract surgery oh, right. because he wanted to keep a, a high reputation back then didn't want any failures no no so he he noticed that if you shined a light in someone's eye that the pupil would shrink and also if you shined it in one eye the affected eye the other eye if that did shrink as well then they were healthy and they could perform the surgery because what he was noticing was this consensual pupillary reflex so because if you were to cover one eye and shine a light in your eye that pupil should constrict as well so if if you don't have that there's a problem okay yeah yeah and then that's just been developed throughout the years so about then i think it was the 1950s around then you had two people lowenstein lowenfeld who developed mod, uh, revolutionized modern pupillometry really and you you see this uh, videography technique come into play 
So people aren't just taking pictures anymore, they're taking videos and they're using infrared light to be able to video the eyes in the dark as well. So you can map out the, the dynamics of this response. So you're looking at flashing a light on for five seconds or so and then leaving it off for 30 seconds. And then you can map out the response of the pupil. So you can look at the, the speed of the constriction, the, the amplitude of the constriction, the level of uh, the actual constriction itself, looking at the dilation as well. So it's really modernized in the last century. And then I've just built on that. Given a headset, has cameras in it, a VR headset. And then that's where we're at at the moment with it. So how did you get into this? So the project itself was formed before I, I was in the picture because I'm just a PhD student. So I, I just applied for the project. I kind of fell into it in a way, quite luckily, I suppose, kind of fortuitous in that sense, because I applied for a different PhD up in Sheffield mm -hmm. that was looking at carbon monoxide in relation, well, low levels of carbon monoxide, but using MRI as a way of looking at those changes because my my master's degree is in neuroimaging so i had that in, kind of interest in that so i applied for that and unfortunately didn't get it but the the head of that project liked me for my my interview and my whole yeah i had to write a proposal from as part of my application process and she liked me so when i actually asked got told i didn't get it and everything they asked um I sent them an email saying, oh, can I, can I get some feedback, you know, as you do? And she said, oh, absolutely. Can we have a FaceTime? And I was like, oh, okay, that's a bit odd. Yeah, that, that's good <laughs> feedback. <laughs> After a rejection. So I was like, yeah, absolutely, sure. And then she went through, said oh, the classic, oh, I'm sorry, and all that, and then gave me uh, the opportunity to apply for this new one that was, that was approaching that she was involved in. She said, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a, a project to go on, be advertised, and he wants a quick turnaround with it. He wants you to apply. You'll have two weeks to apply, and then you'll have interview, and then he wants you to start quite soon after. So I was like, oh, brilliant, because it was very similar in that respect, because this project itself does have an MRI element to it. But later on, so we'll be looking at the, the pupils first, and then we'll be applying the same kind of procedure, but on a much smaller scale with it within an MRI scanner and seeing the difference as well. Cause uh, the next study after the one you did involved, a, there's a cognitive element to it because we're actually introduced carbon monoxide then. So okay. we're going to see with this low levels of carbon monoxide, can we see a cognitive change as well? Because not that many people look at lower levels. No, they tend to be a lot higher because we'll be looking at levels below 50 PPM. So below what your standard carbon, carbon, uh, carbon monoxide monitors in your home would look for. So it would go off about 70 ppm. 50 ppm, it would have to be a constant level for about eight hours before you, your monitor would pick it up and let you know that something's going on. Because that's the safe levels of it, really. You've got about six to eight hours safe. Yeah. So did you say your master's was in neuroimagery? Yes, neuroimaging. Neuroimaging. So cause that's actually kind of interesting because although I said I, I worked in care, I, it's, my care is I specialise in head injury rehabilitation. 
So oh, nice. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we we kind of on different ends of the spectrum, but in the same yeah. same uh, area. Um, so, so how 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 did you get into that? So that that was. So I, my bachelor's was in medical sciences. And then after the end of that, I was thinking, what do I do? What am I interested in? I can think. And towards the end, in that final year of my bachelor's degree, I, was, I got very into the, the neuroanatomy side of things. And I noticed that the university that I did my bachelor's at did a neuroimaging course. I thought, oh, that sounds awesome. I'll, I'll apply for that. So I got onto that, and it was very heavy on the physics to begin with, yeah. how an MRI machine works and everything like that. It's very psychology-related, but I kind of tailored it towards what more I, I was interested in. But yeah, that was, good. that was a good year doing that. I was really enjoyed. That kind of gave me the confidence to go for a PhD at the end of it. Okay. So, so what is it, in, in a sense, that you're trying to achieve so the, the end goal with this is to create a new diagnostic tool. So you've got the uh, classic methods of detecting carbon monoxide poisoning, because there's a problem with it, you see, is there's no pathonomic signs or symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning. So someone could potter into the hospital who's not feeling very well, and the symptoms mimic that of influenza or food poisoning. So they could be quite easily misdiagnosed with either of those. So you get the classic people getting mild headaches, nausea, shortness of breath. When you get higher concentrations, really severe poisoning that you try and get into more dangerous territory. But the, to diagnose someone, you have to have a carboxyhemoglobin level. So when, you, when carbon monoxide enters your body, it binds to the hemoglobin. You've got to measure that, and that has to then correlate with the ex- uh, actual timeline of exposure. But again, with the problem with that is carbon monoxide poisoning is transient. So as soon as someone's been exposed, once you remove them from that exposure point, their levels of carboxyhemoglobin will no longer correlate with the symptoms that they're showing or the signs that they're displaying. So that becomes an issue then because that really leans into the misdiagnosis. So you have got methods. You've got your, your invasive uh, drawing blood, measuring it that way, or pulse oximetry. So, you know, when they put off that little thing on your finger in a hospital, yep. it measures your oxygen saturation. Yep. So you can get an expensive version of that that can detect the hemoglobin and the, or the oxyhemoglobin and the carboxyhemoglobin separately. But again, that is very expensive. We looked into that for uh, monitoring purposes for the PhD project, and that was a no-go after a while. <laughs> or the other way is the carbo- um, carbon monoxide breath analysis that you did as part of your screening process for the study. Yep. But again, these all of them have that same issue as as soon as you remove someone from that source, that, that level isn't going to correlate anymore. But what we do know from previous studies is that the carbon monoxide itself affects the central nervous system and it does cause a problem like affects the visual function especially like it mimics that of optic neuropathies which we can see we know for a fact that we can have a look at those issues with pupillometry 
which is why. So that's we linking back into that yeah. uh, side of things. So that's why the where the ideas come from, where we can use pupilometry as a method to see whether someone has been exposed. It's. I find it. I find it. It tends to be more delayed cognitive responses. All right. I tell you what I find very strange about this is, um, and it's a, it's a bit of a segue, really, but. If you're someone like me who, like, I used to have camper vans and stuff like that because I was into surfing, and or you have a caravan or you have a boat or anything, but anything with some form of gas cooker on it, 99% of the time people have carbon monoxide monitors for that reason. Yeah. So so I just assume, and, the, and these, you can buy them from any camping shop for under a fiver, and you just stick some double A's in them. So I find it fascinating that we're, that there's such a well-known well-documented danger to carbon monoxide and yet we don't have a very simple way of detecting carbon monoxide poisoning yeah it's that's a massive issue massive issue it is because i i can swear to you you could go to any like camping festival any campsite and you'll be find it harder to find somebody that doesn't have some form of carbon monoxide monitor if they're cooking with gas and the same in houses so kind of so it so when I was first talking to you when we first met, I, I kind of I didn't really understand the purpose of what you were doing. I just you yeah. know I was just like oh right okay yeah that's that and I thought well that's a bit strange everybody you know it must be so simple because at your lowest level you can pick them up at a a festival for a fiver to to monitor yeah. carbon monoxide levels because we know how dangerous it is. There was just this assumption that a doctor would be able to tell me in in 30 seconds that I had carbon monoxide poisoning. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. It just goes by so easily. And there's, there's about 40 deaths, 60 deaths. Uh, that's the problem. It just goes by so easily misdiagnosed. It's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Because... We we kind of live in a world where we assume things that we know so much about are easily well. It's just not a problem anymore. Yeah. And here, here you are trying to find a way to actually, I, I suppose, for want of a better term, save people's lives because it's it's so easily misdiagnosed. Exactly. And this this say we say we do this and it works and everything all all happy, all singing, all dancing, then we could probably apply it to other issues, other toxicological issues that are out there. Like carbon monoxide itself is is thought of as being one of the oldest toxicological adversaries. It's been around since man, primitive man, built fire in a cave. Yeah. They've been exposed to carbon monoxide, and yet we still really struggle to detect it, really. So, yeah. yeah. That's actually because that's so that that's actually made me have to think about that for a second because yeah you're right ever since we've invented fire we've in, we've released the gas that kills us exactly and we still don't know how to diagnose a problem from prehistoric man in you know efficiently to the point that nobody needs to die from it yeah obviously people have used it for its malicious purposes yeah yeah <laughs> within that time frame. But yeah, they didn't. They didn't know it contained carbon and oxygen for for until a few centuries ago. 
But there's that thing is, and the one that springs to mind is um, the the Bible is always a great reference for things in history that people I don't think they kind of depending on which way you want to look at any kind of religious text, um, but it's believed that the reason um, in Jewish scripture it says do not eat pork is because people didn't understand that if you didn't cook it correctly at the right temperature for long enough, uh, I can't remember what the um, the poison or the, the virus or wh whatever it is, it's the bacteria that, that's in it will kill you. Yeah. So, and they think that's actually how it came about or the origins of do not eat pork is because they didn't, what they knew is that sometimes when they ate it, they died. Whereas they didn't have that problem with beef or fish or, yes. or birds. So, and they, they, there's a belief that that's actually where it comes from. And it, it, and it literally became part of the religious text. Thou must not eat pork. Um, and so there must have been a point, and the reason I'm saying that is there must have been a point at some at some point that prehistoric man realised there was a problem with fires that they had to overcome without knowing about, because you were saying we didn't discover like oxygen, carbon monoxide until a couple of centuries ago. But there would have been yeah. this knowledge that there was a danger with the smoke. They're definitely aware of things because there are little pockets of history where it's where you see some, someone's died from being around a fire or something like that, where they, there's a few little nuggets of information where people, historians, current historians have thought, oh, yeah, that could have been carbon monoxide poisoning just because of where they were. They weren't in a well-ventilated area and they had these oil fires going on and things like that. So I think they're aware something fishy was going on, yeah. but they had no idea at all what it was. No, and, and that, that's what I mean. There, there's always these things through history where th there was another one to do with waterways. They realised that stagnant water caused diseases. But I think, if I remember correctly, they they thought it was the smell that was the problem, so they had to get rid of the smell, but it was it was actually the stagnant water. But it, again, it was they didn't know why. They just think, hang on, whenever there's this, yeah, we get these things happen. So that, like you were, like I was saying, is as soon as you mentioned cavemen lighting fires in caves, just like, <laughs> hang on a second, there would have been these unwritten rules that they all kind of knew that you you can and cannot do, but not knowing the reasons why. Yeah. So I think it go by so so far so long without them realizing really. Yeah. Because you just can't, it's just they don't have the technology or the knowledge to put two and two together at that point, do they? really the no. like oh look there's a fire we're suffocating <laughs> slowly <laughs> yeah but th that's just it they wouldn't have but they would have figured it out over time or a couple of generations that if you have a fire in this way it resulted in deaths when when we did it this way it didn't you know? yeah um it's it, yeah humans kind of have I, I tend to notice that humans, as as smart as we can be, some of the greatest discoveries have just been clumsy luck. And we oh, seem yeah. we seem to have got through life. We've kind of evolved quite well, just being lucky and clumsy at the same time. And certain things happen. It's like, oh, yeah. Well, I better not do that again. You know. Yeah. Sure. I think they. 
1895 was when they figured out that carbon monoxide binds to hemoglobin. Oh, right. I'm I'm actually more surprised it was that long ago. So it's quite a long time ago, but that's that's when they figured it out. Jesus. 1895. I never... Because that's actually quite advanced science. You know, for, for the instruments and everything they had at the time, that that's really advanced science. Yeah. So, how how much of this did you kind of already know, or did it all come on board with the research for this current project? Say that again. Sorry. Um, how much of this, like the, some of the history that we've just been talking about, and the, did you already know as just part of your studies? And how much of it came about from just this research product? Most of it came about from this research, to be honest. You get, you kind of go in, and unless you're really familiar with the topic, you know, you're not going to know before you go in. It's very PhD is very much learn on the job, really. Okay. So I was in a good position that we we needed to kind of still get the ethics in. I think I applied for that before everything so luckily most of that was written prior to me even starting i just had to do a little change little bits and stuff we still obviously we're still we were still dealing with the uh the back end of covid so yeah. trying to make sure that everything was happy or the uni was happy with what we were doing comfortable with us getting people in because we just we applied for ethics all three study all three of the big studies simultaneously so we've just got ethics to cover us for the full for three years so that beginning stage while we're waiting for ethics approval and everything like that, it was just me just Googling everything, just looking through all the previous research, going back and everything, looking at everything I could look at to do with carbon monoxide, especially low levels of carbon monoxide, looking at the history of carbon monoxide, looking at the history of uh, pupillometry, looking at the history of the pupillary light reflex, all of that, all little extra bits as well because when – when you did the study, we had the transcranial Doppler imaging going as well, that little ultrasound probe. Yeah. So we've got that going at the same time. So looking at making sure I know I had to learn how to use that. That was my second year as a PhD student. I had a guy come in to teach me how to use that machine. <laughs> and I just spent the next week just using it on myself. Oh, <laughs> trying to find the trying to find the middle cerebral artery the whole time. I <laughs> got a lot of gel in my hair that week. Yeah. Yeah, well, because it was it was amazing, kind because when I, um, when when I turned up, it's it's not what I, none of it was what I was expecting because you're effectively in an industrial unit, yeah, and you kind of go in and that looks all it's kind of almost like reception like, and then there's like what looks like a canteen, and then you go through a door, and it is something out of like a a dodgy CIA type film where you're just like, exactly do you do in here? And then yeah. we went, kind of walked around what I suppose is, I don't know what the, 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 like the cube or the block is. Then you go into it, up those stairs, and you kind of go through what looks like a chamber into another chamber. And there was all these fans and a running machine. And it's just like, this yeah. is the sort of thing they built Captain America on, isn't it? <laughs> there's some proper human yeah. testing going on in here 
I mean, not much at the moment. It's just me doing <laughs> doing things at the moment in there. Very, um, yeah, they've done, they've done a lot in there. They've done, like, mask testing and things when it's come to, like, when COVID started. Yeah. I'm not actually sure what the treadmill was used for. Okay, so it's it's probably just somebody put it in there for it. themselves and just have all the fans on there to keep themselves cool. They haven't used it since I've been around. I've been there for a year now, and they haven't used it. It's ve- it's a very heavy treadmill as well. I had to move it as well at one point. That was heavy, but yeah. So what? We've, yeah, that middle block is is just the chamber, the exposure chamber. Yeah, and they've got it. Like I said to you before, it's like it's designed to expose people to things. But yeah, you didn't have to be exposed to anything other than some pretty lights in a headset. So no, it was, it was interesting because it wasn't too bad. No, yeah, no, it's, they do. They do a lot of testing. Well, because I mean, it's nice that. Sorry, it's yeah, it's nice because it's um, it's it is weird because it's a University of Hertfordshire in the middle of Wiltshire. Yeah, well, that caught me out. That did catch me out. Yeah, catches a lot of people out. But it's nice because it's it's separate from the university itself, so it gives you more of a as as a PhD student as well. It gives you more of a an office kind of setting, more of a structure to do things in. I've got I know people who do PhDs that they could they could spend a day not doing anything when, yeah. they, when they should be working and things like that and they get behind on writing because you've got to write a lot at the end if you if you're just going through it getting everything ready whereas I've got most of my intro written ready for the end so hopefully all I need to do is do a few little tweaks of that and then I can just pop pop on the extra bits that I'll write throughout yeah. the rest of the PhD yeah, so just give you a bit of structure. Well, because PhDs are uh, a lot more intensive than people. I mean, like everybody's like, oh yeah, well, you know, obviously a PhD is not going to be easy. But people don't really, and I only know this because I have a friend who, um, I'm sure it's psychotherapy, but I used to help edit her dissertations. And they are so intense yes. in, in terms of the, just the hours of writing that you have to put in and yes. people don't really take on board that by the time you finish their PhD, you would have written close to a novel. Oh, absolutely. It is a, a novel or a novella. It's close to that. Yeah. Yeah. At least a novella, at least. Yeah. They are big bulky things at yeah. the end. And you're not, the, the struggle with it as well is that, because you're you're learning as you go, and this dissertation that you're writing for a PhD, it's not for for the for the layperson. You're writing it for experts to read. Yeah. So you've got to learn and make and build yourself into being that expert to tell that to tell your research in that kind of way. So it, it's scary initially when you start because you're gonna like you got to make sure it's not too simple, but it's not too complicated as well that you actually understand what you're writing. Well. When my friend Haley had her first dissertation, she asked me because I have written a book, so I know about editing and drafts and yeah. stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, yeah, of course, no problem. But, it, of course, it was on psychotherapy, and, and she went all the way through and did her doctorate on child psychotherapy. Yes. So I, I would do these dissertations, and, and quite often she would just really want, is there a, you know, because there's normally a word count at some point that you've got to fit within um, I'm not sure if it's the same for everybody, but there were times when she had a word count. Um, and then there's just times like, is there a better way to restructure a paragraph? Yeah. But 
I would spend half of that editing process looking up words because I had no idea what what it meant. It, yeah. And it's very hard to edit something if you don't understand what the word means because the yes. word, the meaning of the word is the context to the paragraph or the sentence. And and at one point, I I, I swear, I, I started to believe I was becoming an expert in Freud and Klein psychology and psychotherapy. There was like nothing on them I hadn't read. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely going to have to include a glossary or something in mine at the end, I think. So yeah. when this is in terms of for you, uh, when the PhD is all f- finished, which when do you, when do you when are you hoping that'll be over? Well, so our, my funding finishes in twenty twenty four, so about April time twenty twenty four. Oh, so you've got a good few years yet. Well, a couple. Yeah, of years. I've got a couple of years left. Yeah. So yeah, I've just only just finished my first year, and then that's enough. But then I've got an extra, at least an extra year if I need it to write up. I'm hoping I don't need it. <laughs> that's that's a year that I won't get paid to do anything. So I'm hope I'm hoping, fingers crossed, I can get I can get most things done by then. Yeah. And then once I'm done with that, it's just going into try and find a postdoctoral position. If if I'm lucky, if I'm if, if it all works out well, then hopefully I can carry on with the research that I'm doing now because I find it absolutely fascinating. So try and because obviously. What I'm doing right now, the aim, the end goal is to create this diagnostic tool, but that won't be the end of the PhD. PhD is just to form this basis that we've got. Does this concept work? Yeah. Hopefully by the end of that, we can say, yes, it does. And then I can move forward, hopefully, go into a postdoctoral position and then continue that research and actually make it a reality. So where would that be? So is is the research currently being sponsored by somebody outside of the university? Yes. Are you able to say who that is or not? Yeah, the uh, Carbon Monoxide Research Trust, a charity that funds research into carbon monoxide. So, yeah, so so in theory, because, yeah, so in theory, it would be great for you then if you can continue, like, prove that there is... um, some validity to the study and that actually this is something that can become a tool that can be used. Yeah, absolutely. If this works, it should be very easy to discontinue getting funding for that for this particular project because we've kind of, if it works and everything, we can say, Oh, look, it works. This is, we know where the end goal is. Can we have the money to get there? And they should be more than willing to, to give it to us. Yeah. So that then, brings about an, another thing doesn't it because and i don't know if you thought about this if you prove that this works and you then become part of the the team or the person that creates this diagnostic tool this is potentially something that gets used around the world to save people's lives yeah do you think about that yeah uh. Try not to think about it too much. <laughs> I feel like it gets a bit scary when you start thinking like that. No, um, but, but that's because in in a way, right? So, so I'm 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 not a scientist in any way, shape, or form, and so 
in a weird way that there's very few jobs or roles in life that are actually meaningful. And I, for, for many years, worked in the car trade, customer services and things like that, and then kind of stumbled into head injury rehabilitation. And it was the first time in my life where I actually thought, do you know what, you actually do something useful for society. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I could actually have a timeline of experience where my direct interaction with so you know, a particular adult or something got them back into a job, reconnected them with their family, got them into some sort of vocational roles at college or, you know, I, I could literally sort of categorize the areas that I was making little improvements in people's lives. Okay. And, and that can be quite a strange feeling the first time it happens because, you know, up until then I'd, I'd just done paperwork really. And it's just, well, that piece of paper now needs to go into that person's injury and out of my injury. Yeah. It, you know, and, and people often talk about that. So there, there are very few roles in the world where you can do something that you can evidence actually has some value to society. But then when you move into certain fields with science and doctors and stuff, you, you can do something that potentially is globally helpful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it's it's dawned on me a few times. I'm glad I brought that back up for you. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, it'll keep me awake tonight. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, no pressure. The, the whole seven billion population of the world are waiting on this, but there's yeah. no pressure. Yeah, they can wait a few more years. <laughs> it's yeah, it has dawned on me. I think it'll it'll be more. It'll it'll affect me more when we get to a point where we we are seeing whether it can actually be done yeah when that's happening and when if we move into a, a position where we actually start creating this thing and testing it things and we're show, showing positive results showing that this this is good this could actually work i think that's when it'll start to hit me more right now it's just baby steps I'm just I'm in the very the infancy of this idea, really. But in saying that, because, you know, everything that you have in a hospital today, from MRIs to X-rays, was always at some point in the infancy of an idea. Yes. And, you know, God willing, this will, you know, the research will back up the beliefs. It will evidence that, that it can be something and do something, which will eventually would end up in every hospital, you know, just just like an X-ray machine, just just like um, an MRI machine. I mean, you know, I know nothing about med medical science. So, you know, but th there are, if you went into any hospital in almost anywhere in the world, there are certain machines that are just there that once were the yeah. infancy of an idea. Yeah. Well, with this as well, we're looking at... Um hopefully we could maybe develop it into a, a mobile phone app even. So there are a few people that look at uh, using or utilizing a phone as a pupilometer, as a handheld pupilometer. So if we could do that, then it, it's beyond the hospitals. It's within yeah. someone's home, like care homes, anything, 
anything that anyone who has access to a mobile phone could use this. That'd be amazing. Right now, it's just a dream. <laughs> but the, everything starts from that. Everything does start yeah. from, you know, somebody has to have an idea about something, and it, it that then has to develop. It, it's it's having the staying power to see it through, you know, yes. and 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 dealing with the setbacks and. You know, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of what setbacks there would be, but it, it's <clears throat> it, it's how you manage anything in life, isn't it? To okay, well, the, this is what I'm trying to achieve because I, I remember a, a friend of mine, William. He was um, I can't remember. He wasn't doing his PhD when I first met him, but it was where he was going. Is what he was going on to do, and at the time he was doing geology. And and he was saying that sometimes you can spend three years, four years doing a PhD just to come out at the end of it and say, no, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> definitely a reality. That's a possibility with this. For because sure. that, that but... shocked me. He was just like, no, no. He said, you can spend three or four years researching something to prove that something could happen for your research to say, no, it's not possible. Yeah. I was just like, oh. I had no idea that that's how PhDs can work. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like you do it in even my master's degree. The end of that, the the little research that I did for that was uh, didn't work. So that wasn't <laughs> significant at all. With this, we it should work. The idea is quite solid behind it. Before I had this, uh, the the study that you participated in, that we did do a little pilot study just looking at whether this new form of pupilometry that we're using is reproducible. And so far it's looking, yeah, it is pretty reproducible, especially at longer durations of, of light exposure. So now we've got that in the bag saying, yeah, this looks fairly reproducible. If across different ages, across different people, we can see this seems to work quite consistently. And then now we're doing, obviously with you, when you did, can we optimize it, the stimuli that we're using? Can we use different colors, different durations in a different order and see which is the best, which is the best we can use and take that forward. So in terms of the interest in sciences, when did that start for you? Interest in science? It's always kind of been there. I don't really, there's no definitive point where I think, oh yeah. That so was, so this, this is a childhood thing? Oh, absolutely. I think when when I was when I was in high school, I remember I wanted to be uh, go to medical school, and then I kind of decided against that, thinking I don't really want to deal with patients. Yeah, I'll lose my patients. Yeah. Uh, so I decided quite quite early on after after that, just I think my age. I still had that interest in medical sciences, which is why I went on to do medical sciences, my bachelor's degree. So it was kind of that led left the back door of possibility I could go to medical school if I wanted to. Yeah. But then I obviously I ended that and I wasn't sure still. So kind of just ridden the wave, seeing where I've ended up. I've ended up here on a PhD doing toxicology. <laughs> no, but it's so when like you were you were saying at high school you knew you wanted to kind of or thought you wanted to go to medical school 
So are you saying like at the age of like 10, 11 years, 12 years old, you kind of already had an idea of what you were interested in? Yeah, I'd say so. I've I've always kind of had an aptitude for for science, the science subjects, really. So, I I there's no doubt that I wasn't ever really going to go down that route. I think like I'm not I'm not very artistic, not very creative. So it's always science and maths subjects always came very easy yeah. to me growing up. So it just felt natural to go down that route because one thing that I always thought of growing up when I when I think of when you people are telling you what kind of job you want to get and everything like that, I don't want it I de- I never wanted to be ruled by money. Yeah. I always wanted to go into a job. I didn't care particularly how much I got paid as long as at the end of the day I come home and I say I enjoyed that. I really yeah. enjoyed that day. And that's that's the route I've taken with what I wanted to do and the progress I've taken towards getting a career. I wanted to always come back and say, yeah, I've enjoyed that. I think to be fair, I think to be fair for most people, that would be their ambition is to, um, yeah, I I would say a good 90% of people would love to be in a position where they go to work and say, yeah, I enjoyed that. I think the difficult, and this is one of the things that fascinates me, which is one of the reasons I love doing podcasts, is because often, you know, like if you're looking for consistencies, when when I'm talking with um, with with people, you you often find that um, you, you said something interesting that you, you didn't really have any sort of aptitude towards like art or or anything like that, but you found sciences and maths easy and interesting. So it, it sometimes it, it's people aren't always drawn, you know, or, or people have an ambition. I'd love to do this. I'd love to do that, but but they just don't have a skill set that's required for it. Or if they go down that route, they're working twice as hard as somebody say like yourself. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> so it's they end up just doing a job that they just they're just like. I just don't know what else to do and I need to earn money. So I may as well make it about money because yeah. they, they they just never had a passion or something that they just, when they turn up and do it, it's just like, Oh yeah, no, I love my job. Yeah. And, and I, I, I find that, um, but so there's certain people that I come across, um, on the podcast when I'm talking to people that, and, and it, yeah, it, uh, it, it can uh, be one rabbit hole. And I've wanted to go down. Sure. What's that Wor- working for money? Yeah, <laughs> but but I think that that's what um, I was going to say is I, I think it's when when you have something that you're naturally interested in and you just naturally seem to be drawn in that direction, there seems to come to be a satisfaction from that that finance doesn't become an op become part of it. It's just like as long as I'm I'm doing this, I'm always going to be okay. But when people yeah. don't have that the financial structure becomes something they focus on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because right right now, PhD students, you get tuppence, really. You get, yeah. a, you get a stipend that go, comes out of um, the, the money that the sponsors are given for the uni. And it's 
very minimal. Just gets you through, yeah. really. And obviously, you get more as you uh, once you finish and everything like that. But yeah, it's you got to be you got to be interested in it if you want to do it. You never you never you can't do a PhD for the money. No, you got to get through it. But it's like I said that when with I can with well it's it's like. I, I, I was talking to a, a lady, I think it was last week, uh, uh, her name's uh, Teresa I, Ivansick, and she's a professional bodybuilder. Now, she's been doing it for like 18 years, and, and she's at the top level. You know, she, she's placed at Mr. Yeah. Olymp uh, uh, Olympia and things like that. Um, but when you listen to her and, and, and the journey and the you know financial rewards just that were non-existent, although they're better now, were non-existent and it's all financed funded yeah. and everything by herself but you never actually once really hear her talk about that you just hear her talk about her love of bodybuilding and and just how passionate she is about turning up every year to be you know and put herself on the line and i think it took her 10 years to get a pro card yeah you know so she was she was literally financing herself for 10 years to, to um before she even got a pro card and then <clears throat> still really had to keep financing herself and it and like i said it, it's fascinating to me in, in a sense um partly because i've never had anything that i'm naturally drawn to so kind of financial reward has always been a big part of what i look for in a job it's not like the, the, the biggest determiner of the job but when there's nothing you're naturally interested in you're just like well i better go and do it for the money then <laughs> and there there is this like I said, I, 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 I'm being very clumsy because I'm trying to figure out how to articulate it, but it, it's just a pattern I notice in certain people that know from an early outset what they're interested in. Not necessarily what they want to do for a job, but what they're interested in. And that interest takes them down a road and money is irrelevant outside of what I need to, to survive on. And it's like you say, it's just uh, the turning up, going there and doing the job or the, the thing that I want to do every day and being able to do that. Money is not not even part of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's with when you ask kids and stuff what they what they want to do when they when they grow up. I think that's a, it's a difficult question to ask them because they've got to know what they're interested in and they've got to associate that with a job that. But then there's so many jobs that they don't know what's associated with that subject. So you got to kind of. I think you got to be careful with them and explore it differently. Because if you'd have asked me when I was uh, in primary school, for say, do you want to be a toxicologist when you grow up? <laughs> I was. I wasn't going to say yes. Would I? I would. No, but you know probably what knew what one was. Yeah, I reckon you would have known. <laughs> Potentially, I could have worked <laughs> out. Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you you don't know, do you? So yeah, it's you got to kind of tailor it when you're younger. You got to just really follow your interests subject wise. Um, I think if you do that, it'll fall into place where you end up. Really, just you know, go, that, take it as far as you can. That's probably about the best career advice you could give anyone at school right now. Yeah, follow your you interests, just, and it'll fall into place. Yeah, you got you've got to because you can't. 
I find it difficult. You can't be forced into a, into a role that you don't want to go into, really, because that's just going to make your life so miserable if you're just going down a route that's pre pre set out for you. You've got to find the subjects that you enjoy. It doesn't even have to be within school, particularly, because loads of people have extracurricular activities. They go to do what sports, different sports, martial arts, all that kind of thing, and that might be a route for them to take towards yeah. a career. It's just finding what you're interested in, and following it. So, <clears throat> I'm just um, getting close to finishing up, and I have this question that I normally ask at the um, end of my podcast, and it's if you could be, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you the question, but then I'm gonna ask you a varied version of it as well. Is if you could be any time, any place, any when, what are you driving, and what music are you listening to? <laughs> Is this past, present, future type of thing? And it's entirely up to you. You can be any time, any place, any when. But where are you? What are you driving and what music are you listening to? Oh, do you know what? I, I, I absolutely love to kind of be in a kind of a future world with you know, flying, flying in a, in a flying car. Yeah. Type of thing. Just listening to some like nice rock music. Bobbing along. So that, that. <clears throat> that'll do. Second one then. Variation of the same question as you are in the sciences, if you, if you could be any time, any place, any when, who would you be work? Um, what science or what experiment would you be working on? Say that again, sorry. Last bit. Um, same sort of the basis of the question. If you could be at any time, any place, any when, what experiment would you be, or what invention would you be working on? Oh, that is a that is a tough one. That um, I mean, to be honest, from this research with the PhD, I would love to have been involved in that development of the modern pupilometer, the modern elect, electro electric pupilograph that development of using videography for the first time, using infrared light for the first time, mapping out. Because they, what they did is, we, we get it now, we get a, a, a video that we put into the into some software and it lifts out a, an ex, a massive Excel spreadsheet with all this data on it. And what they did is they just printed off different frames of, of the eye, pop it on a screen, and just measured it by hand. Oh wow! It'd be interesting just to just to experience that and go through that with them that process. No, that, that's cool. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you.